0: First and foremost are the players. And I have a couple of my favorite all-time players with you today. There's Pete Rose. Now, I don't know why this guy's not in the Hall of Fame. I love Pete Rose. my hero when I was growing up. I have another one of my heroes. There she is. Jamie Chapman sliding into third just like Pete Rose. Uh, two of my favorite players. And In any, any contest, let's face it, the players do most of the work. Without them, you don't have a game. They're the reason that everything else is there. But you also have another group, the coaches. I've got a picture of my favorite coach, Vince Lombardi. You know, Vernon didn't even know who Vince Lombardi was. There's a generation gap here. He didn't know who Vince Lombardi was. And next to him, my favorite player, Ray Nitschke, number 66. The coaches, what do they do? They prepare the players in the game. They train them. They develop them. They provide the game plan and the strategy by which The team is going to attack the opposition. And then we have the officials, everybody's least favorite participant in the game, the guys who throw up the red cards, the guys who call you out, the guys who throw out the coaches and the players. The referees, though, now they provide an important basic function. You know what that is? To give the players and and coaches an excuse when they lose a game. Because no players and coaches ever lost a game on their own. It was always because the officials or the umpires made a bad call. Actually, the role of the officials is to make sure that the game is played fairly and according to the rules. They're to create boundaries for the players. And to maintain control of the game without them, it would be really hard to have the contest. But lastly, there's our favorite group, the spectators. These are the crazy people who show up for the game three hours early and then scream for three hours while the game's going on. And they dress in the strangest costumes. They wear cheese on their heads. Can you imagine for three hours sitting there with a block of cheese on your head? But they do. And then there are other fans like uh, our good University of Georgia fans. Now somewhere when they saw this picture, there was a mom and dad thinking, did we really pay tuition for these kids to go to school? And they were really questioning that decision. See, fans do strange things. They speak as if they played on the team. They're always using words like we and us when referring to the team as if they had been a part of the game. They see themselves as an invaluable member of the contest. They feel as if the game could not be played without them. They often live or die by how their team does. And their lives are ruined sometimes if their teams teams lose. Case in point, the seeming citywide depression that came over Atlanta after the Falcons lost the Super Bowl. I was amazed! As a matter of fact, I finally just had to turn my radio off because I was so tired of hearing people moan and complain and grumble about that their team lost the Super Bowl. Guys, I have found that fans can be best described with the big C, the big three C's. Here's what fans do best. Number one, they critique. They always know better than the coaches what play should have been called at a certain point in the game. And boy, did you hear that at the end of the Falcons game. And then they complain. One bad call, and they want the whole coaching staff fired. Or one bad call by an official, and they want to throw things on the field. And they criticize They act like what the players are doing is an easy thing to do. You know, like stopping Tom Brady is an easy thing. It is not easy. But they do this all while they're sitting in their recliners, eating chicken wings and nachos, watching their 70-inch big screen TV. (laughs) Spectators are a strange lot. At some point in my life, I have been all four of these different participants. And through my personal experience, I can honestly say there is one group that is undoubtedly causes the most problems of any in any given game, and that is the spectators. If you haven't been to a t-ball game lately, you don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And what is weird about spectators is that of all four groups, they have invested the least in the game. I mean, the the coaches and the players and the umpires, well, they've trained and they've sweated and they've studied and they've endured pain for months getting ready for the season. What have the spectators done? Well, they've invested a little bit of money and a little bit of time. Well, maybe a lot of money on that big 70 inch screen TV or, or those season tickets, but they really don't have a big investment. But they would swear that they have an undying commitment to their team and and. But what price have they really paid? Certainly not the kind of price that the coaches and the players and the umpires have paid. In reality, a sporting event could go on just fine without the spectators. As a matter of fact, one did. On April 29, 2015, such a game took place. That day, the Baltimore Orioles beat the Chicago White Sox 8-2 in a baseball game played in an empty stadium. The reason it was empty? There had been rioting going on in Baltimore that week. And for safety reasons, the police had not allowed the fans to come to the stadium that day. So there were 45,000 empty seats watching a baseball game. But you know what? Despite the empty stadium, the professional baseball game was successfully played. The bottom line was the spectators, though they add excitement to the game at times, they're not necessary at all for the game to be a success. Now, you may be asking yourself this morning, why all this talk about spectators? Because I am very concerned that Christianity is quickly becoming a spectator sport for many churchgoers. More and more, I sense that people are approaching church and worship and Bible study and even their Christian walk as if they were spectators to it. Many people come to church as a place to be entertained. They come to enjoy some good music on Sunday morning, played by a well-rehearsed band. And they expect a dynamic Bible study to make them laugh, to make them smile, or to make them possibly even cry. And of course, a nice beverage along the way will certainly add an inviting touch. Don't misunderstand. Our worship team works really hard to be the best they can be. You know why? Because if they got up here really sloppy, trust me, you would not be able to worship. And our pastors, we do study and prepare for hours because we want to give you quality Bible studies. We don't want to slop through something without really giving it care. We're teaching God's Word. And yes, we even have some really good lattes back in the brook that you can come in. And you know what? If for no other purpose, on those days when the pastor really don't have his best stuff, it keeps you awake. So they serve a purpose. But understand, the offering boxes are not ticket booths where you come in and you purchase a box seat down front or or, a cheap seat up in the balcony. These are not stadium seats. This is not a stadium. This room is more like a locker room or a practice facility. Yes, it's a place of worship and it's a place of prayer. But it's also a place of study and preparation. We do everything we do on Sunday morning so that you will walk out of here encouraged and motivated to do what God wants you to do. We work hard so that you'll grow in your faith by being here and that it will help you to do the things that God has called you to do. Last Sunday, we began a series of studies we're calling People Last Forever. Reaching people for Jesus is the most important thing that you and I will accomplish in this life. And of course, last week, Pastor Sandy kicked it off by telling us how proud we should be of the gospel. The gospel. That news is an incredible message. And for the last 2,000 years, it has changed millions upon millions of lives for all eternity. And your life and my life are included in that number. Don't ever forget what your life was like before you came to Jesus. Or if you came to Christ at an early age, don't ever forget what your life might have been had you not given it to Christ. But this week, we're going to examine the role of the church in this mission to reach people with the gospel. Now, we all know that the church is not this building. It's not Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain Incorporated. The church is us. It's the people. We're all members, along with millions and millions of other people around the world. We're members of the body of Christ. We are the church. But this morning, when we speak of the church, I want you to think more in an organizational sense of the word. In other words, what is the role that Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain as a group, plays in reaching our community with the gospel of Christ? What is the real purpose that... This group of people are meeting here this morning. Why are we here? Guys, let's look at a few verses this morning and try to answer that question. We'll start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, God operates his kingdom with just one currency, and that currency is grace. God will never be a debtor to anyone. We can never earn anything that God has given to us. We don't sit down and demand from God. God gives it to us freely. And God gives His gifts to us, expecting nothing in return, and and not because we deserve them. Not not because He looks around and says, well, who's most deserving in here? Okay, I'm going to give them a gift. Sometimes, I have no clue how God chooses to pass out His gifts. It's most of the time, I cannot understand. And then I realize it is just simply God's choice. He freely gives as He chooses. And so when you use your gifts that God has given to you, don't get proud about it. Remember that it's a grace gift given to you by a loving Heavenly Father to an undeserving recipient. That's how God measures out His grace and His gifts to us. Look at verse 18. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now here, Paul quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18. In this psalm, David pictures a victorious king returning from battle. And in the process of the battle, he has set free those in his army who had previously been captured by the enemy. And now he's leading them back into the city victorious. He's ascending up the hill into Jerusalem. Now the once captured soldiers are free men again. They're back home and they're free. But in Psalm 68, if you go back there and actually read the quote, it then says... And you have received gifts from men. Not given gifts, but you have received gifts. In other words, as the king enters into the city, he is showered with gifts and and with the praises of his victory as he returns to his capital city. The picture here is of the king walking in and everybody just heaving gifts on him, thankful as a grateful nation. But Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he turns the thought around and he pictures the great King Jesus ascending into that city, but giving gifts as he comes in victorious. See, our God, he needs nothing from men. There's nothing that we can give him that he really needs. And so what does he do? He turns it around and he showers gifts on us as he enters his kingdom. Victorious. Look at verse 9. Now this He ascended. What does it mean but that He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also He who ascended far above the heavens that He might fill all things. Jesus ascended all the way to heaven after His resurrection. You remember there on the Mount of Olives, as the disciples watched it, He, he ascended into heaven. But before He could ascend... He first had to descend from heaven to earth. He humbled himself. He became a lowly man. He laid aside his glory and he became one of us. Why? Well, Paul tells us here that he might fill all things. See, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that There was a comforter, the Holy Spirit, wanting to come down, but that that Holy Spirit could not come down until what? Until He went back to heaven. And so when He returned, the Holy Spirit fell on the church and filled all believers, beginning with that 120 there on the day of Pentecost. But since then, for the last 2,000 years, that same Holy Spirit has been falling on people by the millions as they've given their life to Christ. He has filled all believers. But understand, none of this could have happened without Jesus being willing to come low. To become a vulnerable man. He had to descend from heaven. He had to leave behind His glory that He might bring this great salvation to a dying world. But now, as a victorious king returning to His heavenly throne, what does He do? He gives gift to men. Specifically here, in the context, Paul is talking about certain gifts that Jesus gave to strengthen and establish His church. This passage is different from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, where he talks about personal gifts that he's given to individuals. Here, he's talking about specific gifts, special gifts, given to specific men in order that they might bless the church as a whole. In verse 11, he tells us what those gifts are. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. So here, Paul lists out five group of men who each had received a special gifting of the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. I want us to look at each gift and examine the purpose that he gave them to, to us, to the church. The first group he mentions here are the apostles. If we went back a couple of chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we'd read this. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You guys who've come to Christ, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the church, the household of God, the church that we're a part of, has been built on three important foundational pieces. The apostles, the prophets, and of course Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone of the rock upon which all of it is built. Now in the New Testament, the apostles were a special and unique group of men. They were all specifically chosen and called by Jesus. And they all had to have one thing in common. They all had to have seen the risen Savior. Now, for the 11 who had spent three years with him, their calling actually happened before his death and resurrection, but they all witnessed his resurrection. For the apostle Paul, whom I believe is really the 12th apostle, this happened after Jesus' ascension. Because there on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus do? Jesus appeared specifically to him so that he would see the risen Savior, so that he would be called personally by Jesus. Today, there are no apostles who meet these qualifications. But there are what we might call little A apostles, comparing them to the big A apostles of the New Testament that Jesus personally chose I think these would be men and women like missionaries who go to places where the gospel has never been preached and they serve the same calling as these big A apostles, but without some of the same authority and some of the same power. Just like their New Testament counterparts, They go into areas of the world and they bring the gospel. Areas where there were not churches. Areas where the gospel had not been preached. And they go to those places where churches had not existed and they plant them. They do the same thing that the early apostles did. They go out in the world and they plant churches. I think many of the great missionaries of the 17s, 18s, and 1900s were these apostles that Jesus gifted to the church. It's amazing, during this 300 year period of time, this gifted group of missionaries literally took the gospel all over the world. It was amazing, it was an amazing time in church history when Jesus just gifted some people to go out and the gospel went all over the world. Now, the second group is the prophets he speaks of here. These prophets were also a group of men with a special calling and authority in the first century church. They strengthened the church by speaking directly from God to the church in the New Testament, excuse me, to the church before the New Testament was complete. They too were a part of this foundation upon which the church was built. They spoke as if God were speaking. To the early church today i think we still have people with the gift of prophecy but again not with the same authority and power as these first century prophets who laid the foundation of the church yes i believe there are people today gifted who speak for god by declaring his word in a powerful way in the lives of believers today no doubt about it they have a gifting that enables them to preach the Word with convicting power. When they speak, churches are corrected. The church is brought to repentance, just as they did in the early church. They have a correcting and a redirecting effect on the body of Christ. That's what the prophets do. They correct and they redirect the church. I would say if we looked at church history, men like Martin Luther... And other great reformers were prophets to the body of Christ. They came in and they corrected the church. And then they redirected it back to a proper understanding of the Bible. And of faith. And of grace. These were the prophets. Now the third group that he mentions are gifted individuals that we call evangelists. These are people who preach And the result of their preaching is that large numbers of people respond to the message. If you look in the New Testament, I think the first evangelist that we actually see is the Apostle Peter. Certainly had the gift of evangelism. You remember on the day of Pentecost when he got up and preached, what happened? 3,000 people responded to the message. A few days later in Acts chapter 3 and 4, probably a few months later in Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter again preaches, and what happens? 5,000, it says men, so it it doesn't include the women and the children, responded to the gospel message that day. During the great revivals of church history, and you can go back and read about many of them, God gave gifted men to preach the gospel. And during those periods of great revival, people by the mass responded to the message. These men were given to the church for this reason. They bring multiplication to the church. Now, understand, I believe normal church growth is probably by addition, not by multiplication. Usually the church grows slowly over time as individuals are added to the church. People are saved here, people are saved there. God raises them up. But every once in a while, God raises up an evangelist who speaks to the church And the church grows exponentially. Understand, you you cannot learn how to be an evangelist. Oh, you can study them and you can study their sermons and you can study how they preach. But trust me, you can get up and preach the same sermons that they preach and it's not going to have the same effect on the church because this is a gift that God gives to certain men at certain times. And when He does, this grace gift changes the church. Sometimes It changes whole nations. And boy, you can look at times in church history when God would raise up an evangelist and literally whole nations would be redirected to the gospel. Now notice, so far we have those who plant churches where there are no churches. We have those who correct and redirect the church where there has probably been heresy or apostasy. And then we have those who enlarge the church very quickly through the gift of evangelism. But lastly, there's a fourth group. This is the group we call the pastor-teacher. These are men called to lead and feed the local church. Their calling is more localized, whereas the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, we think of them in in a more mass, reaching whole nations, whole large groups of people. The pastor-teacher is more local in his effect. They often come after the work of these other three are done and they lead and teach the local church. They're really gifted in two areas that apply to the local church. First of all, they're able to shepherd the church. This is what the word pastor means. Pastor is simply another word for shepherd. They guard and they protect the church from those who would seek to do harm to the church, from those who would seek to deceive the church. I call pastors wolf detectors because that's literally what they need to do. They need to detect who the wolves are and then they need to get them out of the church. They run them off. And through the years here at Calvary Chapel, we've had a few wolves come in that we've had to get them out the door, tell them to head on. But secondly, they educate the flock in the truths of the Scriptures. They must be gifted in in being able to communicate the Word of God in order to be successful in their calling. See, their role is to mature and to instruct those who are under their care in the things of God. They're not evangelists. Their job is not to get up every Sunday morning and preach the gospel to a group of people who all know the gospel, who've all accepted the gospel. No, that is not the role of the pastor teacher. His role is to teach the Bible to you, to help you grow in your faith so that you might go out and teach the gospel and preach the gospel. Guys, we want you to be strong in your faith so that the gospel will spread through you. That was Jesus' plan. That was His design. He equipped pastor-teachers to equip you to go out and change people's lives. So often that's not how we see it. So often we think changing people's lives is the job of the pastor. It's not. It's your job. So let's look at what Jesus has provided for His church. He's laid its foundation with the apostles and the prophets and of course the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is the chief cornerstone. Then He's gifted it with four groups that come to plant and to grow, and to rebuke, and to multiply, and mature the church. And he did all of this for a reason. So here's the big question for us this morning. What was that reason? Why did we just spend 15 minutes talking about these gifted men? Because he gave them for a reason, and and the answer to that question is what we're here for today. First of all, He did not give these gifted men to the church so that you and I could sit in the stands and be spectators. He didn't do it so that we could come in here on Sunday morning and have a pep rally and pull for our team. That's not why he did it at all. Jesus gave these gifts to the church so that you and I would get in the game. When I played football in high school, I have a photo that I want to show you that I actually did play. There I was, number six. Now, hey, have you got hair like that, buddy? That, you know what they called me in high school? They called me helmet head because they said, man, your hair looks like a helmet that you just put on, and it did. But I'm proud of that hair. But, yeah, I should be proud of that hair. Hey, you know what? When you show up for football the first day of summer camp, you know what they do? They begin to issue you equipment. They give you a helmet. And shoulder pads, and even a team jersey. Mine was always number 66 because, again, my favorite player was Ray Nitschke. But you know what? They didn't give you all that equipment so that then you could go and park yourself in the stands and become a spectator and pull for the team. No, they they gave you that equipment because they expected you to be at practice and to work hard and then to come to the games and perform. They wanted you to be a part of the team, not a spectator. Now, you're going to have to excuse all the sports metaphors this morning, but trust me, the Apostle Paul used them, so I felt the freedom to use them as well. (laughs) Look, Jesus and Pastor Sandy and the rest of our staff here, we invest in your life with the same hope and the same expectation. And that is that we are wanting to see you get in the game. Now, what does that mean? What what do you mean, get in the game? What does that mean when we're talking about Christianity? Well, the answer is found in verse 12. How do we get in the game? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus gave these gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Jesus gave these gifted folks to the church so that the saints, who's that? That's us, we're the saints, could be equipped to do the work of ministry. In other words, to get us in the game. That's what it means to get in the game. It means to do the work of ministry. Now, that raises another question. Well, what is the work of ministry? I think to answer that question, we need to look back. We simply look back to the gifted people that Jesus gave to the church. Because, you know what first and foremost they did? The work of ministry. They just did it on a larger scale. But look, the apostles, what did they do? They went to the unchurched. They were sent out by Jesus to go where there was no church. What did the prophets do? They keep the church on the right path. They declare God's truth in order to correct the church. The evangelists, Well, they go out and they preach the gospel in ways that draws unsaved people in large numbers to the church. And then the pastor teachers, well, they mature and they care for those who are saved and who become disciples of Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that all of this, all together in a package, is the work of ministry. These men did it on a a macro level, they did it to the church as a whole. They laid the foundation for the church. They established the church as a whole. But then every church member is to do these same things on a micro level as individuals. Think about it. The apostles and missionaries, they go to far off lands to seek out and reach strangers that have no understanding of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. What do you and I do? We go to far off workplaces and far off neighborhoods. And we seek out and reach out to strangers. And we befriend them. And we identify them. And then as God gives us opportunity, what do we do? We introduce them to Jesus. What about the prophets? They correct the wayward church. You know what? You guys are often called and placed in positions where you need to correct a brother or sister in Christ a friend who followed the Lord, but, but they've gotten astray and they've gotten off into sin. And, and God calls you to be a prophet in their life. To come to them and to correct them and to redirect them in their walk with the Lord. Of course, the evangelists share the Gospel in a compelling way to the lost world. And you know what? God has called you to go to your world and share the Gospel to your lost friends. Now, it's not going to usually be done by preaching to them A lot of us make that mistake. We think we got to preach to our friends. Most of the sharing of the gospel that takes place out there in your world is going to be done in simple conversation. It's going to be done around a a lunchroom table. It's going to be done at a work desk where somebody turns to you and starts to tell you about their problems and the struggles they're having. And then God opens up a door for you just to simply turn and to say, hey, you know what? Let me tell you what changed my life. And you share the gospel. You become an evangelist to that person. And of course, the pastor teacher, he helps mature the church. Often, you're going to be placed in situations where you're going to be around a young believer in the workplace, in the neighborhood, maybe here at church, and God is going to say to you, hey, they need your help. Hey, Pastor Sandy, Pastor James can't help them. But you can. Because we may never know of their need. We may never know of the questions that they have. But God places you in their lives. And all that God wants you to do is to share the simple truths that you know that God has taught you from coming in on Sunday morning. And so what is the work of ministry? Four things. It's seeking. It's correcting. It's sharing and it's discipling. This is the work of ministry. And your pastors invest every week in your life in order to equip you to do these things. We don't teach you the Bible so that you can win Bible trivia with your friend's house on Friday night. Now i got to tell you, I used to be really good at Bible trivia. And I used to humiliate my children because I could just whoop them so bad. Isn't that strange to think that? We teach you to prepare you. We want to shepherd you so that you can counsel and so that you can reach out and care for your friends that don't know the Lord. Ooh, I used that word, didn't I? Counsel. Ooh, I can't counsel. Why not? Why not when a friend comes to you who begins to share a problem at work of something that's going on in their life and you know the answer? You've got some good advice that you heard in a Bible study. And you sit down and say, you know, I I know about your problem. As a matter of fact, I've had that problem before. And here's how God helped me through it. You know, God calls you to do that. Listen, if the only work of ministry that happens goes on here on Sunday morning, we will never have any kind of large effect on our community. We'll never reach your neighborhood, probably. Probably. But here's the problem. Many people here today, that is exactly what you thought the work of ministry should be. It should be the pastors coming in on Sunday morning and ministering to you. And that's the work of ministry. That's That's what many people think. You go to church. You give an offering. You worship for an hour. You pray. But you believe that the work of ministry is then the job of the pastors and the elders of the church. Let me say to you, no, no, that is not the work. That is what Satan wants you to think. He wants you to believe that you can't do any of these things. He wants you to feel ill-equipped and unprepared to share your faith with anyone. But you're not. Most of you know your Bible really well. And you know what you do know? You know how Jesus changed your life. And it's not hard to tell a story. You know, we, we've been showing these testimonies on Sunday morning. These We call them CCSM stories. You know what we did? These are just, these are just plain old folks that we picked out of our congregation. And we said, would you, would you share your testimony? And they're, they're just plain, gut, plain people. They're not Bible scholars. They're not seminary graduates. They're just people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. But you have to admit, when you listen to their story, it's powerful, isn't it? Because there is power in a testimony. There's power in a life that's been changed. And that is the work of ministry. Let me close by just telling you one last thing. I believe Satan has been hard at work for the last 2,000 years to turn the church into a spectator sport. He's done this by trying to develop a hierarchy and a division between church leadership and the people. He has caused the church to come up with elaborate systems of worship whereby the, the pastor or the priest puts on a show and the people watch. He's even deceived church leaders into wearing... Strange costumes that separate themselves from the people. You know, hats and robes and, and things that normal people don't wear. And yet we put them on. Expensive suits that we really can't afford to buy. Sometimes we buy them because why? We want to look different. We've, Satan's even convinced pastors, you know, to get up on their stages and sit in thrones or big cushy chairs that are different from the ones you're sitting in. Because Satan wants you to... Hey, We're different. Satan has done a lot of things to say to you, this is the special people. These are the equipped people. And you're not. You're just the normal people. Why has Satan worked so hard to do this? Why has he created this environment in the church? He's done it to create the illusion that the work of ministry takes special guys who dress weird and who sit in big chairs up on stage. And you know what? He has successfully done that to a large degree. And people sit out in the congregation and they go, well, that's not me. I could never do what they do. Guys, church leaders are no different from you. You know why we dress like this on Sunday morning? Because we want to look like you. And if you know me, and if you know Pastor Sandy, and if you know Pastor Brett, and if you know Pastor Matt, you know that we are no different from you. We have the same struggles you have. We deal with the same issues you deal with. The only difference is we have a slightly different calling on our life, a slightly different role. But both of us are called to do the work of ministry. But I believe Satan has been very successful in turning Christianity into a spectator sport. He's deceived us. You want to know if you're a spectator this morning? You're probably really good at the big C3s. You're really good at critiquing what goes on here. You're really good at second-guessing what the the leadership does. You're really good at complaining about the decisions that are made. And you're really good at criticizing. You know, you may be stacking up a few criticisms this morning, and, and a lot of them are probably warranted. But, see, that's when we know we're a spectator, when we think that way. Because participants don't think like spectators. The players, the coaches, even the referees and umpires... They don't think like spectators. Because they're not spectators. They're involved in the game. They're involved in the struggle. They're involved in the war. And yes, in a lot of ways, we're involved in a war. It's a spiritual war, but it's a war nonetheless. And so my challenge to you this morning is to stop spectating. I want you to get in the game. I want you to start seeing that the work of ministry is what God has called you to do in your little corner of the world. Your far-off workplace. Your neighborhood. Your family. Because understand this. Neither myself, nor Pastor Sandy, or anybody else on our staff, or any of our elders, will probably ever be able to affect the people in your world. At least not to the large degree that you will be able to. As a matter of fact, you might be the only person in that world that can bring the gospel to it. That can bring God's word to it. That can bring God's truth to it. May God help us to busy ourselves with the work of ministry. You're here. Most of you are here every week, getting equipped, getting prepared. Now, go play the game. Answer the call. That's what we're doing what we're doing for, to get you ready. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor James Chapman. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor James' teaching ministry by visiting calvarycsm.org.